0: All of those books are available on Amazon as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: The day of the robbery, Nadia's friend, who I would usually go to school with, because she went to a fashion school and I went to Apex Technical School, which is near each other, and we go to school in the morning. And she was like, and she would always do, call me in the morning, you ready meet me outside? And I was like... I ain't going to school today. She's like, why? I was like, S-t-t. I'm not going to school today. <laughs> and it was because I had this planned out robbery with these guys. I remember being, like, we were supposed to meet at a certain house to drive into Manhattan, maybe, I don't know, 2, 3 o'clock. I can't remember the exact time. Maybe 3 o'clock, something like that. And I remember being a little late, and they was about to drive off. Like, they was packing a car, about to leave. And I was like, yo, 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 wait, wait for me. <laughs> and I and I came in the car, and, you know, sometimes I feel like, geez, I could have easily just not been a part of that. I remember when I was in jail, I was just thinking that they didn't even need me to be there. they were about to leave me. I obviously ended up in tragedy.
0: Hey there, it's Light Watkins, and we are back with another incredible story from the end of the tunnel. What tunnel am I referring to? you know, that moment in life when we think that all hope is lost and the worst has happened and that our life is basically over. If you haven't had your dark tunnel moment yet, or if you're currently navigating your way through one, these stories are here to remind you that more often than not, it's not the end of your life, or maybe it is the end of one aspect of your life, but it's the beginning of another. And this next phase is often where the real you comes out on the other end, right? The you that becomes a light unto the world. The you that stops defining success by how much money you have or how comfortable you are. And you start to define success by how much of an impact you're able to make in the lives of others. And today's story follows that script to a T. My guest is Marlon Peterson. Marlon grew up in Brooklyn, and to say he had a rough childhood would be an understatement. Although he was a great kid at heart, and he did well at school, and he was grounded in his religion, he was picked on, and he was bullied, and he was robbed and beat up countless times. And just when he was starting to become accepted among his peers, he got caught up in an attempted robbery. Even though he was just the lookout... He didn't have any contact with anyone who got hurt. He ended up facing life in prison. Next thing he knows, he's being hauled off to this upstate prison. And that was when his tunnel got the darkest. But he also struck up a correspondence with a teacher from the old neighborhood. And he began this letter exchange with some of her students. And guess what? Because of everything Marlon had been through in his life, He was uniquely qualified to offer these kids insight and wisdom into their issues and their traumas, into their brokenness. And one of them even referred to Marlon as her hero. Now, this, of course, gave him a greater sense of purpose. And he ended up initiating several programs in the prison where he was being housed, And he started mentoring these kids and he started mentoring other inmates as well. The programs continued even after he was released 12 years later, where he became a role model for kids to help them navigate their trauma. In other words, he became the person that he wished he had had when he was growing up. How beautiful is that? And he ended up publishing a book called Bird Uncaged, which tells the full story of his hero's journey from hell to back. And I can't wait for you to hear it firsthand from Marlon in this episode. I think you're going to be inspired by his honesty and his resolve considering everything that he's been through. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Mr. Marlon Peterson. Marlon Peterson, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so much for making
1: the time. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: We're going to start off talking about Little Marlin. And so it's interesting, you grew up in Crown Heights, right? But you're from Trinidad. Your parents are from Trinidad. I and I've talked to, I think, three or four people on this show who all grew up in Crown Heights and they had the craziest experiences to report. So there's something going on or there was something going on in Crown Heights. Back in the 90s and the 80s and the, and the 70s, that was just like you didn't want to be over there as a young person. But before we get into all of that, when you think back to your young sort of innocent years, what was your favorite toy or, or activity as a child?
1: What comes to mind is that I had Transformer action figures. And I remember I had Optimus Prime. My mother had bought it for me one Christmas, I think. My father was upset because it was a Christmas gift and there's a whole religious thing. But anyway, there was this Optimus Prime like action figure. And it was kind of like, I don't know, maybe like a foot long. And that was like one of my favorite toys. I remember that Transformer toy as a little kid.
0: For people who have never heard of Transformers, can you just give us a little summary of what, what a Transformer is?
1: Like these robots that save planet Earth. They are robots, but they can change into automobiles, all type of trucks and cars yeah, they, they transform to save the world from the other Transformers. I forget the name of the the antagonist. <laughs> the, the, uh, antagonists. And they fight and they save planet Earth. And that's pretty much what they do every day.
0: And Optimus Prime is the head, is the, is the leader of the good guys, right?
1: Like the yeah. god of Transformers. <laughs> do you
0: remember what you got out of playing with the Optimus Prime? Did it invoke something within you or you just like the way it looked?
1: I mean, he was a star of the show of the cartoon. I mean, uh, like he was a lead, Optimus Prime. I like the colors; it was a reddish color. He was the biggest guy, the smartest guy. He had the most. Like he was, he you know, he like Optimus Prime had to say he's like the god of the Transformer. Like he was like he also spoke of like this, like almost a Morgan Freeman. <laughs> like you know, he was like God in Transformer style. He had like this wisdom that he was speaking in this voice. I also, I mean, I didn't get a lot of. Like, I didn't get, like, an abundance of toys, you know what I mean? So, like, the Optimist Prime, or I got Little G.I. Joes at the time. But he was the biggest. Like, he stood out amongst all of them. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe because he was the focal point of the cartoon, and I think that's why I liked it so much.
0: So, you grew up, your parents were together. You yeah. had one sister, one brother. So, what was that like growing up? Were you all close-knit? You said just Jehovah's Witness. Your dad was Jehovah's Witness, and... Mm-hmm. I guess he kind of was trying to get your mom into it, but she was a bit, she pushed back.
1: She was back. like, nah, uh, my brother and sister, my sister's 11 years older than me. My brother's eight years older than me. So I came out of nowhere. And uh, my sister and I were always close. She was kind of like, in some at some point, even like a second mom at times, even for my brother, she's like a second mom. Cause my parents worked a lot. And you know that story. My brother and I, though, were not close. We would think like the two boys would be close. My brother and I weren't close really at all until we got into adulthood. And there was a lot of, you know, as a kid, I didn't know why. I just thought he didn't like me. As a kid, I didn't understand it. As I got older, I kind of understood the backstory of that stuff. But like, I didn't grow up liking him, right? In the sense, what I mean, not liking him meaning that I didn't feel like he was like he. I didn't feel like he liked me, so I just made a decision that he, I don't like him too, right? And because we, we didn't do we didn't do brother stuff. We, you know, we didn't hang out. We didn't watch cartoons. We didn't go to the park. We didn't play fight. We didn't did nothing. We just like, he would, we wouldn't do, we just kind of like estranged. And it's weird because we lived in a one bedroom apartment. So it was five of us initially before my nephew came along, but it was five of us who lived in this one bedroom apartment. And so imagine like we live in this one bedroom apartment, a small one bedroom apartment. And my brother and I didn't really get it, didn't have any sort of relationship, but my sister and I were really tight. My father, especially I was super tight to my father, my mother too. You know, But my father and I had a different bond in that he you know, as you mentioned, he became a Jehovah's Witness. He became a Jehovah's Witness a year before I was born. And so I'm the first child of his children that since he became a Jehovah's Witness. And his older kids, my brother and sister, didn't. They, I mean, they went because they were young, but they didn't really take a liking to it. And they were preteens. So they rebelled fast and they kind of just got out of it. But I was the one that was born into it. And I loved it. And that was our bond. My father and I had that. Like, we had a you know, uh son to father bond, but we also had like a spiritual bond that was different from any of the relationships I have with anybody else in my, in my family.
0: Was there a strong
1: Trinidadian influence in your house? And what, what did that look like? Hell yeah. Like I always say, I didn't really know hip hop like that until like maybe ten, eleven, or something like that. I mean, I knew of it, but I didn't listen to it. Yeah. We grew up acculturated as a Trinidadian family in Brooklyn in a way. I mean, I was in Trinidad in my mother's womb. My mother was pregnant with me. The first time when she went to Trinidad for Carnival in seventy eight, uh in seventy nine, excuse me. And then when in nineteen eighty, I was in Trinidad three months old with my mother, um, and my sister and brother. And so the food we ate, the music we listened to, everything was sort of like a Trinidadian household. I remember Saturday and Sunday mornings was when the we would have the West Indian radio station would come on. It was W L I B here in Brooklyn, in New York City, and that was the only time we heard it. West Indian. We didn't listen to the radio any other time because that day was our West Indian music. You hear about the news going back home on home in Trinidad. I mean, even today, I still consider Trinidad home, even though I've never lived there. It, right? It's just sort of natural. I call Trinidad home, and I'm you know I'm happy for that. We definitely were raised in a, a culture rooted in in Brooklyn. Did your
0: siblings go to PS 138 or just you went to PS 138? Oh, they, they
1: went to 138 too. Obviously, years before me.
0: In your book that you wrote. You talked about the notorious PS 138, people getting a face slashed and all kinds of crazy stuff. You got bullied. Did
1: someone prepare you for that before you went? No, nah, not really. You hear about like a certain schools are like not good. I don't think prepare for it. I don't think there was any prepare for it. Like that was the only choice. You know, it was there wasn't like a whole bunch of options in, in the sense of it was zone schools, So you had to go to the school that was in your zone. And so we all went to the school that was in our zone and one thirty was it. So there's no preparation for it. It's
0: just like your brother didn't say, hey, I definitely, uh, Marlon, you got to make sure you learn how to fight or whatever. Yeah. The
1: only thing I remember, I remember maybe first grade or so. I remember one time I think my father was picking me up from school or something like that. And some kids, some kids, sorry, some kids were bothering me. And my father would tell me, even as a Jehovah's Witness at the time, my father would tell me, you know, don't ever start any fights, but if anybody ever tried to message you, you have to defend yourself. I remember you saying you got to defend yourself. But like, I mean, my brother and I didn't really kick it like that. We didn't we didn't interact in that way. So I don't recall him ever saying that in any sort of way of like, we got to, you know, you got to protect yourself or anything like that.
0: But even in the neighborhood, there was a lot of violence, people getting thrown off the of roofs and gunshots at night. And all of that. So, did you normalize that as
1: an elementary school child? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about normalization is that, like, I didn't know anything else. You know, what I mean, it wasn't like, well, you know, when I go to this neighborhood or when I live when I lived on that area, it wasn't like that. This is all it was. There wasn't. I didn't know anything else other than that. And, you know, we didn't have, you know, you had, what, five channels on TV, right? So it wasn't like, you know, you could, you know, you know, as you now, you can scroll online, and you can see all these other places in the world, like whatever the five channels was on TV, that's all you watched. So there wasn't a lot of exposure to like all the other possibilities.
0: Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the HappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's the HappinessInsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What was the conversation in the house around navigating all of that violence and potential danger, particularly with your dad? Were there any lessons or any insights that he would echo, maybe religious in nature, about trusting Jehovah or anything yeah. like
1: that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. My pops was much more in the religious realm in terms of like trusting Jehovah, pray to Jehovah, you know, make sure you study. Yeah, take, bring your problems to Jehovah. Like bring your problems to Jehovah, and He's gonna take care of it. And I believed it, right? And, and I felt like it was working at some point. Sometimes, I mean, my siblings definitely interacted with the violence in the neighborhood, but they didn't. It wasn't a conversation that involved me. Like they, my my brother and sister had their own relationship. They grew up with each other, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so they had their own thing, and I was this little kid that was like the little Jehovah Witness boy. So it's weird, like how we were in this very small space, but we had these different sort of lives happening, even if it's in a small little space in that apartment. How did you learn to keep things to yourself when you were that age? I don't know. I think that there was a level of, I never saw my brother being bullied or anything like that. I never saw my sister being bullied. I learned about it as I got older that, you know, they had some issues of being like, West Indian kids in school and people were bullying for that. But I didn't know about it as a kid. So my brother and sister to me looked like they were like tough, like they could handle. Like they didn't seem like they they seemed tough, like they were good. So it was a little bit shameful for me because I was like, I'm I don't, you know, I'm not tough like them. I don't want I was a little bit ashamed that I wasn't like what I thought perceived as being tough like my brother, particularly my brother. So I just figured that like I just you know, I want to be ashamed of like not being like him. I mean, I think that was one of the way, one of the reasons why I kept it to myself, and also once again, I didn't know anything else. You know, it just seemed like that's what happened. Kids got beat up, people got jumped. So it was like it's it's just what happens. Why why complain about something that happening that happens? Like it's part of being here. You just got to be tough enough not to let it happen to you. But it wasn't like it wasn't no other. You know, I was a little kid. I didn't see options. It's just how it is here.
0: Tough for you was fighting back and you couldn't find the will to fight back when you would get bullied and jumped and all of that.
1: It was the other thing. One is that, you know, I never, there's this feeling like I, I grew up really entrenched in religion. And there's this thing about violence that, you know, I don't want to engage in violence, you know, look down upon Jehovah. I don't want to, you know, miss out Jehovah's blessing and all that sort of stuff if I fight. And I was scared, gonna <laughs> be quite honest. I was scared that like somebody might really damage me. You know, I, I you know, and, and, and you know, I remember and I write about this in the book. But I remember, as I said, like as a kid, seeing kids you know getting slashed, little kids being slashed. So I mean, I I always thought in these, in these extremes, like it could be very good or it's going to be the worst. Right? It's not going to be a fight. Like they're going to cut me, stab me, or you know, all those different types of things. So I was so much scared. I was scared of fighting initially. If uh, I mean. I fought as little kids fighting, you know, kick and all that sort of stuff as a kid in the playground with your friends, but I was a kid who was easily intimidated. So you still managed to become the valedictorian
0: <laughs> of your school, of PS 138. How did that happen? Was it, would yeah. you have natural ability or do you have, did you study your ass off or?
1: I think a little bit of both. I mean, I don't know about natural, I mean, but part of the religion, you know, my father would, as a. You know, before I can even remember, my father was would read to me right from the Bible, and you know, you know, we call them Bible study aids, like other books that's associated with the Bible. He would read to me every night and go into the Kingdom Hall as a young kid. Like you know, you would be encouraged to like read all these things, but also comment and speak on these things. I think and research. Like I think, although I'm not religious anymore, one thing I do admire about is that they encourage you to like research, like read, like figure this stuff out on your own as a little kid for my level, I would do whatever research I could. And my father would push me to do it. Like he wasn't somebody, if I asked him a question, he'd be like, did you look it up? I'd be like, no. And he would know the answer. Be like, you got to find it. And I would be upset with it, but it developed a certain muscle in me. So by the time I was in sixth grade, I mean, I was working those muscles out already and it trickled into my schoolwork. And, And also, I mean, that was a, schoolwork was a place that I knew I could like excel. Like it was a place, it was, for what it's worth, it was where I could, I want to say be cool, but it was a place where I knew I felt secure. And so I could throw myself into that. And, you know, I gravitate. I liked learning as a young kid and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, being a valedictorian, it's funny. I didn't even know what a valedictorian was before they asked me to be. But it was a tough year. Sixth grade was a tough year. Uh, like, it was a tough year for me and other other things. But it maybe because it was so tough for me, that is why I sort of threw myself into my, you know, my schoolwork. But you basically got pulled out of the school. Yeah. Well, so it happens this way where I went. So when I, I transferred several times, a couple of times as a little kid. So from third grade, my mother, my father, transferred me to another school because it was a little bit better than PS 138. And we had to lie and say, we had a family. So we get into another zone school. And then I graduated from that school, fourth and fifth grade. And I went to junior high school, which is IS 390, which is a, a, also a, like, it was the feeder of kids that went from PS 138. So, IS390 IS 390 is a course shoot from like, you know, Albany projects. And it was, you know, every, there was always stories about IS 390. And I went there in sixth grade. I got robbed within a couple of weeks. My parents took me out, and then they put me back into 138 for sixth grade. And then I finished up valedictorian and graduated from there. And then I, you know, went on to another junior high school. So I transferred a few times between third grade and eventually seventh grade.
0: I was trying to keep track of how many times you would get beat up or, or robbed in your book. And it seems like it happened quite a bit. And you kind of learned to keep it to yourself, to not really tell anybody about it after a while. Why
1: was that? Shame. I, I just felt like I should be able to defend myself. And not only should be defending myself, but I was shameful that people would pick on me. Like I felt like there was something about me that made me an easy target. And so, I, you know, I just felt the shame. I felt ashamed. There's no other way to look at it. And, and the other part of it is that, like, I wasn't the only kid that I knew about that was going through certain things. So it was just so, it was regular. It was mm-hmm. regular, right? Even as an adult, and I've worked with young people in my adult life, and I, hear, I, I had kids come into my programs and be like, yo, this, somebody, this just happened. Or, or another kid would tell me about something that happened to another kid in the program. The kid who was robbed or assaulted wouldn't tell me, another student would. Same reason. I don't, you know, they were ashamed that it happened to them. They did not want to tell anybody. And I'm a boy. And you know, as a boy, you know, you, you, the idea that boys are supposed to be tough is something you know, you, we get that at a young age, right? And there's not anything malicious about it necessarily, just kind of like how, in our society, I not want to say in our community, in our society, we want boys to be tough. And I didn't feel like I was feeling, living up to that, you know, I wasn't living up to that standard. When you look back at your young self as a grown man
0: can you see like how people would have picked on you or why they would have picked on you? And like, when you're working with these young people now, can you kind of see which ones would be potentially targeted?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, what is, I mean, that's one of my gifts working with young folks. Like I can, I, I see, like I see, I can read things. And for mm-hmm. me, I mean, looking back into the younger version of me, as a Jehovah's Witness, first of all, I walked around my neighborhood on Saturdays and Sundays with my father in a suit and tie with a Watchtown Awake magazine. So kids from my neighborhood or who or who in my school were seeing me on these days. So I look now. I look like you like a dweeb. Like well you you know you, you know you got here with a suit and tie. Get away from my door. I ain't selling buying none of your magazines and all that sort of stuff. And then there's jokes. I also was very insecure about how I looked as a kid. I have big lips and. People would make fun of that sort of stuff. And I didn't, I I wasn't slick with the mouth, right? I wouldn't, I didn't have, like, you know, people say shooting the dozens. I wasn't good with that, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody made fun of me, I ain't really had no comeback for it. So that means, oh, everybody can make fun of me now. You know, like the worst days in school life was when we had the teacher absent. We had a substitute teacher. But, you know, substitute teachers, all hell breaks loose, right? Nobody respected substitute. And so that means, like, you got to somehow make sure you feel safe in that class, right? Because the substitute teacher got no power and so kids would pick on me on those sort of days and i was a smart kid for what it's worth and i behaved well right i was a kid that you know so teachers might be like hey why you don't act like marlin and, you know that sort of stuff and that's the worst thing you could do right in a class right <laughs> why you don't act like Marlon? oh why don't you act like marlin and, and, and you know so and now we gotta go to the schoolyard later you know for lunch i wasn't i wasn't like you know superficial i didn't dress all that cool like we didn't i didn't have like I mean, I dressed decent, but I didn't have like nice sneakers. I didn't get. I got daddy haircuts up until I was in high school. Like, I mean, I had all the, <laughs> all the, all the markings of a, of a target. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All
0: of them. And you said that the first time you felt loved was when your brother was willing to stand up for you. Can you talk about that experience?
1: It was ninth grade, and once again, I was early in ninth grade, and I got jumped it's pretty badly, and. The only reason why people find out about it because a teacher saw me laying on the floor, or a staff member, I don't even know if it was a teacher, but a, an adult in the school saw me laying on the floor and took me to the you know, to the dean and all that sort of stuff. So they called my mother, and uh, my mother was, uh, had recently been laid off, so she was home all the time. And uh, I guess she told my brother about it. I didn't know that. So when it was time to leave school, they kept me in the school. I had ideas. I was, my, my plan was to like, sneak out the building. I was just so ashamed I was going to sneak out the building and go home, but- you know, they wouldn't let me because they was watching me. Just, you know, the dean and all these people had questions for me. So anyways, dismissal time. As I'm walking out the building, this is Westinghouse, George Westinghouse in Brooklyn. And I was, you know, same school that bust around, Jay-Z went to. <laughs> like, you know, that's a claim, right? But like, I remember walking to the front of the school by the exit and I saw like a line of dudes. And my brother was a line of dudes, like bigger dudes. You know, they, my brother's eight years older than me. So in that age range, I'm 14. So these guys are like late teens, early twenties. And they up there like, who is it? And the person who did it, I know they had they already left the building, so I don't know who they were, but it felt like, wow, you came for me. Like you came here to look like to take to protect me in a way. I didn't even think about asking somebody to come fight for me or do that. I didn't think about that. He just you know, obviously my mother told him and he just showed up with a crew. And it felt like, I mean, that's hood love. That was like for me, that was love. That was that was hood love. You know, they was right coming out to fight for me.
0: want to be when you grew up when you were that age did you have a a vision of your life beyond crown heights and getting robbed beat up jumped every other week
1: yeah i think funny i think that like nah you know i mean in my eyes because i was heavily steeped in religion up until maybe ninth grade like a tenth grade i wanted to be an elder in a congregation and get married and you know, have a family like that was it. I didn't know. I figured I'd live right here in Brooklyn and have a family, get a city job or something. Like I didn't have a goal to be. I don't know any sort of profession. When young, when older people would ask, as they often do, ask young people what you want to be. I remember I was I want to be a computer programmer. I didn't know what it meant. It just sounded like a good thing. People always said it. I never touched a computer. Never had. A, I d- never looked at anything about a computer back then. But it seemed like a good answer, so I would say it. But I didn't have no goal like to be a certain profession or anything like that. Like I knew I was good in school, but I didn't know what I would do with it. I just figured I just, you know, in the religion, I didn't know I would do with my smarts.
0: So then a few weeks later, apparently, this could be wrong because sometimes in books, it's not written in a linear fashion, but you're in Times Square and some stranger asks you to help him move some boxes.
1: Yeah, so I was also in ninth grade, and this is not too long after I was jumped in Western House. And I would go often go, my sister worked in that area. So I would or sometimes go on Fridays to Baba Hush, you know, lunch. I would also get some money. <laughs> you know, I mean, she'd give me like $20 and, you know, that'd be big for me. And so I left her that, you know, she went about, went back to work and I was on my way to the train station to come home. And some guy, I don't know why, I, I guess he looked, I looked like a prey. I looked like an easy vic. And he asked me, like, yo, shorty, you know, I'm moving these boxes. You help me out with these things. i give you a couple of dollars to help you move these boxes. So I'm like, a little nervous, but I'm like, yeah, you know, it's a couple of dollars. Like, why not? And, you know, he obviously, that was his ploy. He manipulated me, kind of coerced me into going to following him to a hotel somewhere in the area in Times Square, near 8th, on 8th Avenue side, the old Times Square. <laughs> and he, you know, leads me into a hotel room actually not leaving by the time by the, it changes like it turns from him being this nice older guy that wants me to help him with boxes to like as i'm walking him like his tone is like he's starting to change and it's weird because his tone, his tone is starting to change and in my mind i'm like i should just leave or i should just run but i'm also like no nah, i don't act like i'm soft so i'm a, like you know all these things like you know that whole idea of not wanting to be soft right so i'm like i could i could handle this and then i'm also not sure what he like what he's doing. Some also think maybe I'm just in my head. I don't know why he's getting a little more aggressive and whatnot. Anyway, we get up, you know, so we're in, uh, because the idea is that he had to go to this hotel to get more boxes or more stuff. Mm-hmm. My dumb ass is like, yes, okay, I'm going to go. And we end up going to a hotel room. As we get up to the, we walk the steps, whatever he takes the steps and not uh, elevate in the hotel. And as we are like, I'm like, I think at some point I asked him, like, yo, what, like, what are we doing? Like, where are you going? I mean, then he changes completely. Like, you know, get the uh, you know, get the fuck out of there. Like, what the fuck you mean? We go, get the fuck up. And, and he's like yelling at me. And I'm like, oh, shit. Now I'm nervous. And we're in this narrow stairwell. So obviously, you know, I'm stuck. And he ended up going to a hotel room. And we go to a hotel room. And I remember hotel, you know, in these small hotels, as soon as you walk in the door to like a little bathroom on the side or the right-hand side. And, you know, you go in and the, the twin beds. And on the first twin bed, there's a night table, a nightstand, and on a the nightstand, is a gun. And he picks up the gun, and he's, like, closer to the, I'm getting a lot of detail, but, like, he tells me to take my pants down. And I remember, like, now at that point, I'm tearing, I'm, like, trembling. You know, he's in the same aggressive manner. So, I, I, you know, I take it down, Then he starts just touching me. At that time, I was fourteen. I had not, not I had never even masturbated at that age. Right? I was scared; it was a sin, and so I, I didn't even know what masturbation was. And it sounds weird, but I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know, I didn't even know what it, like I knew about. My father taught me about nocturnal emissions and all that sort of stuff, but I didn't know what it was like, what it looked like, or anything like that. What it felt like, and, and he started to like, you know, you know, he he puts his, his, his hands and his mouth on me and all this sort of stuff, and. Eventually, what I thought I was like. I remember saying, "I'm about to pee." I was like, "I'm scared. I'm about. To, I need to pee. I said, I need to pee. I need to pee." I thought I needed to pee. I didn't know what was happening, and it wasn't pee, obviously. And then, at some point, he like I said, "Can I please go to the bathroom?" Like, "Can I please begging? Can I please go to the bathroom?" And then he eventually was like, "Yeah, go to the bathroom." And you know, the bathroom was right there. And I remember I had a, um, there's a part of me at 14 years old thinking I'm tough still, so I used to walk around with a combination lock. I forgot I had the combination lock. I would walk around with it just in case I had to hit somebody, right? And I, I don't know. It just it's not. I, went, I remember going into the bathroom and like crying and also like praying, like why are you letting this happen? Why are you like get me out of here? Why you don't make the stop? And I realized I got the combination lock, and I was like, so I remember I, I hold, you know, I had it in my hand, and I walked like out of the bathroom and right to where he was. He was still like in the position where he was in the in the room by the nightstand. And I just threw it like I threw it almost like like around. I just threw it at him and ran and I ran and to the, I ran literally all the way to the train station and I came home took the train back home and I said nothing. And, and that was just something that I had happened to me. I had never told anybody, but I just kept it to myself.
0: And you said that you started to become more distant from your father after that.
1: Was that linked to the distance? I be- yeah, I became distant from him. I became distant from the religion.
0: You it, felt like I, 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 Jehovah had betrayed you.
1: Yeah, yeah, like he betrayed me. Like, I was like, why do these things keep happening to me? Like I'm here, I'm, I'm being a good kid. I'm preaching. I'm in the Kingdom Hall. I'm giving talks in the hall. I'm and like, why are you letting? These, and in my mind, like I, I believe I had this real close relationship with God, right? And I was like, why, why, why do you keep letting this shit happen to me? Like I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. And my father was like a physical, rep- he wasn't God to me, but my father was a physical representation of my relationship with Jehovah, right? Like, you know, and I was like, fuck this. I was like, I'm tired of this religion. Like, I'm tired of this, like, you, I'm, I, I might as well just not be in this thing if this stuff is going to keep happening to me. I'm going to keep getting robbed and this just do this thing to me. And so my distance from my father came because I started distancing myself from the religion and he didn't like that, obviously, you know, and you know, he would still tried to force me to go and I would find ways to lie and I would sneak out and I would make myself unavailable and all the things so I wouldn't go to the hall anymore. And that became a distance between me and him because I knew I was disappointing him because I started hanging out more and outside more against his will and sneaking out and all those sort of things. I started doing bad in school. So the distance came because I was like, I don't, first of all, a shame because I know that I'm doing things that he don't like. So that close relationship that I had with my father, it became a deep chasm
0: but you were also writing, I think you had an internship at the opera or something like that. You were yeah, definitely yeah, expressing mean... yourself creatively at that time as well.
1: Yeah, I had, I mean, after ninth grade, so I had transferred to, after 10th grade, excuse me. After what happened to me, I was taken out of George Wesson I'm sorry, I was jumped there and he transferred me to Martin Luther King in Manhattan. And Martin Luther King High School is across street from uh, Lincoln Center, the New York City Opera. And a teacher there, a history teacher, I don't forget her name, Miss Nobley particular interest in me, even though I never did any homework. I remember I never I, I just never did homework, but I would excel. I could I would read. I wouldn't do homework, but I would go home and read textbooks. It was a weird thing. Anyway, she got me to New York City Opera to do a summer internship. And it worked out well. I did well there. And but that was it. Like it was just a summer internship and I didn't follow up on it. I remember like years late like a year later in high school, I remember seeing her in a hall one time and it was around like college, um application time like the end of junior years when you're supposed to be like working on your college stuff i remember her asking like so mom you, are you applying to, to what college you applying to and i was like none and she's like why not and i was like uh I, like, I didn't have i didn't i was like for what like, in my mind was we didn't have money for me to go to no school i never saw myself like going to a college like a way i just it's it just some shit i just didn't Not I didn't want to necessarily, I just didn't see it as an option, you know? And I was like, well, I'm going to stay here and go to community college. And I'm not knocking community colleges, obviously, but my brother had enrolled in a community college for a period of time, even though he didn't finish. My sister had enrolled in a community college at a time, even though she didn't finish. So that, I was like, I'm going to go to community college. That's what my older brother and sister did.
0: And what were the kids in the neighborhood, like when they got older, like your brother's age, what were they doing? Were they going to college? Were they getting jobs? What was the role? Uh, what were the role models like in the, in the Crown Heights at the time?
1: I mean, dudes had jobs. I mean, like the older dudes, like my brother, like my brother had, you know, they got jobs, you know, whatever sort of jobs that they had. Or they hung around like I don't know what people were doing for money, I mean, you know people hustled like you know, I know some new older you know a lot of older guys hustled, you know they hustled good en- enough to look to look good, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean, like they looked good they they had all the latest everything, so they were doing fine by uh, my imagination by from what I can see. Let me say this: what I was seeing was not who i mean there was definitely people in our neighborhood who were going away to college or getting into professional, in the professional workplace, career-wise, but I, I don't know. I just, they weren't the people I saw, you know what I mean? I'm sure there, of course there were people doing that, but it's not the people I saw. And I didn't know how, like particularly the college thing, I'm like, like I didn't, I just didn't know how that could be me, hmm. I You know, it, just, it may sound, as an adult now, it may sound somewhat like nonsensical, but it's just not what I saw. It's like me saying, at some point, I want to live in Moscow. Like why? Do, why, do, why, why, why like why? Like i Of course, it's possible, right? Right. But it's just right. not some shit that's in my 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 sphere. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, you kind of fell into
0: a bit of a, I would say, the wrong crowd. We're gonna cut to you not leaving your house on Thursdays because so many crappy things kept happening to you on Thursdays. You shot yourself in the foot. You broke your elbow. You busted your hand in a fight, right? And you're kind of with, I guess, these guys who you feel a little bit more protected with, or at least you you want to pretend like you're tougher
1: around. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about that summer 1998. Um, That's a year after I graduated from high school. I mean, that was a tough year. Not even the summer, but because so it was a friend that shot me and it was a mistake, you know, but he shot me and it was a Thursday evening and then, you know, I broke my elbow playing basketball on a Thursday evening afternoon and then broke my hand on a fight on a Thursday evening. And I got my chain I got jumping and the chain was stolen for me when I was with my little nephew at the time on a third. It was weird. I I was like something was, like I, I was I literally think twice about going certain places or going out on Thursdays. It was weird. And I was just saying, yeah, oh, you know, I talk about where I had told my sister, and it may seem cliche in terms of like black and brown folks from certain urban experiences, but I was like, I don't think I would make it to 21 because, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't no drug dealer like that. I might have sold five bags of weed and I was scared of that, right? But like, I was no drug dealer and no gun dealer like that. But I was around a lot of people, I was around a lot of things. And I put myself in these positions because <laughs> it's weird. I look at it now, but I felt like, it was safer than being just picked on randomly. Right? Mm-hmm. It was weird because I was still being picked on, but at least it was happening less. And, you know, as teenagers, we think we think this of this thing out, stuff out thoroughly, but it wasn't all that well thought out. And the people I put myself around, I didn't put myself around them for protection in the realest sense. It was just like... The people I was rocking with before, it was soft. <laughs> I was like, I'm just be around other folks, right? It ain't like I want to be, I, I didn't join a gang. I didn't, I wasn't like somebody who would say, you know, a big homie would say, Marlon, go do this and I'll run, do that thing. I wasn't like that. I wasn't somebody who would be easily manipulated by people I was cool with, right? I wasn't a pushover by people I was cool with either. That environment, it felt a little bit, it felt more fun. It felt a little bit safer. I, it felt more manly <laughs> for what it's worth.
0: Well, It sounds like you were being you were being accepted by there you go. a group of, a group of people, and and that's what you kind of longed for almost your entire childhood is being accepted.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't it right. matter
0: that they were not up to no good for some of the time. You know, they were accepting you, and these maybe, maybe these were the guys that would have been beating you up if they maybe.
1: weren't accepting maybe. you. Maybe and they were older, right? A and lot they're of older also older, and you know this. This you know this thing about you know my brother and you know I can find brotherhood in other ways right from other people and it felt good to be accepted honestly that's what it was it felt good to be accepted. You met Nadia around this time. Ah yeah the homie Nadia. So Nadia really was closer to my brother because they around a little closer in age ish. She's still younger than him but they were and she used to hang on the block with my brother and some of my older cousins would hang. So we met. You know, my teenage years, I was like maybe 17, 18. But it's interesting, I was close to her friend. But I actually might have went out a couple of times with her cousin, actually. So we weren't all that tight. We knew each other. And, you know, up Marlon, we might have hung out a couple of times on the block and, you know, that sort of stuff. But we weren't tight. Uh, we didn't get tight until I got locked up years later, like five years into the bid. I, I know we didn't get to that yet, but, like, that's when we got tight. And Nadia, she always seemed like like she was a round-the-way girl. Nadia was straight up a round-the-way girl. But she was also... Like, not around the way, girl. Meaning that she was around away, but she also was doing some other shit. Like, she was like, I got to watch my words around her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, she's around the way, girl. We can hang out. But she's like, I can't be. Like, we can't. everybody knew. They kind of like, all right, well, you can't fuck around with her like that, though. You know, she had a level mm. of respect, I guess, that she had that she just carried and walked around with, even though she would be around all the fuckery and all other <laughs> stuff that guys would be doing. in neighborhood.
0: October nineteen ninety nine. You get invited to stake out this spot prior to a robbery. And you're into it. You're like, okay, I'll I'll go.
1: You know, don't leave without me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that a part of that acceptance that we talked about earlier? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, the mere fact that people would, like it was dangerous, but I, I didn't see I didn't see this being like actively like some real danger, right? I don't talk about also, but it wasn't the first time. I had participated or tried to participate in a robbery, right? I remember, uh, I don't know, maybe earlier that's maybe 1998, somewhere around there. You know, a friend of mine, you know, we do this cab driver thing and we had BB guns and you would try to rob a cab driver or we'd try to rob uh, the Chinese food delivery person when they, you know, order food and try to, you know, deliver, you know, rob them for that. And I was just, in my eyes at the time, just having fun. Like if I needed food, I, I didn't need food. <laughs> I mean, I didn't need, I, you know, I could get food. Right. But it was fun. We hanging out. And by that time I had developed this sort of tougher reputation because here's the thing, when when people would rob me or when I got jumped, except for that one time when, um, it happened when I was with my nephew and they took my chain, this stuff happened. It wouldn't be around people. So I, nobody, so nobody who nobody knew this shit was happening. It'd be like out in the neighborhood off my block. So nobody knew the shit was happening. So when I'm around my people, though, on my block, I was able to kind of still create this tougher exterior. So at the time, like when the robbery comes, the opportunity to robbery, here's the thing, like, <laughs> to me, it was just hanging out. And it sound, it's so sad when I say it, it's, you know, I say it like that because it, it ended up being extremely tragic. But I was just hanging out. And folks were like, we're going to stake out of robbery. I mean, stake out of a store. And I was like, all right, cool. Let me come along. You know i'm washing clothes right now and it's so you know i was literally in my ba- in my building apartment building you know you wash clothes in the basement and i remember i would do what i would usually do i would drop my clothes to wash go back upstairs when i was done go back down and dry it so i had time in between the wash and the dry so i went outside <laughs> and my boy was like yo we about to go to stake out this joint and i was like yeah i was like yeah right y'all really gonna do that he's like yeah so i'm like all right let's go and i was like i can come get my clothes later Mm. And I went to Manhattan and we staked out the joint. And I remember talking to one of the dudes, and I was like, "Yo, if I need another person to do the robbery, I'm, I'm down." You know what I mean? And initially they was like, "Well, we think about it." And then he came back later. He's like, "Yeah, I right, cool." And I remember me being the one that's like, "Yo, I'm gonna get a gun because you know, you know, guns are around and available and all that sort of stuff." And they was like, "Nah, you don't need no gun. Just beat it And I like, alright "I'm gonna just beat it <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just be there and see what happened. And I was nervous about it. It's just, it was this very ominous thing. Like like I, the day of the robbery, Nadia's friend, who I would usually go to school with, because she went to a fashion school and I went to Apex Technical School, which is near each other. we go to school in the morning. And she was like, and she would always do, call me in the morning. You ready? Meet me outside. And I was like, I ain't going to school today. She's like, why? I was like, I'm not going to school today. <laughs> and it was because I had this plan out robbery with these guys. I remember being, like, we were supposed to meet at a certain house to drive into Manhattan, maybe, I don't know, 2, 3 o'clock. I can't remember the exact time, maybe 3 o'clock, something like that. And I remember being a little late, and they was about to drive off. Like, they was packing a car about to leave, and I was like, yo, 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 like, wait for me, <laughs> and, I, and I came in the car, and, you know, sometimes I feel like, jeez, I could have easily just not been a part of that. So I remember when I was in jail, I was just thinking that, They didn't even need me to be there. (laughs) They didn't even need me to be there. They were about to leave me. I obviously ended up in tragedy. Talk about that. Like two people got shot. Two people got injured.
0: You were the lookout across the street. Yeah, That was the only involvement you had.
1: Yeah, four people shot all together. Two were killed. One was a store owner. Another one was an employee.
0: And he was like a pillar of his community, right? He was feeding the
1: homeless and stuff. Yeah, he used to feed homeless people from from the store. It was a bakery muffin shop, and he's also a gay man. And I think initially, because they didn't understand the way the robbery happened, they you know the shooting happened happened so fast in terms of, like they went in the store and within the second the shoot happened. So at one point, I I remember my lawyer telling me that they thought it was like a hate crime because they thought we just targeted a gay person. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't even know. I don't. I never went in the store, so I don't even know who the people like. I don't physically know who they are. I just know their names from reports and obviously the newspapers. But yeah, four people right. were shot. One person lost uh testicle. And yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. And
0: you never had a gun. You never even went in the store. You never even, you couldn't pick the people out of a lineup. No. But you were across the street and you rode there with those guys. So you bailed, you went on the subway back to Brooklyn. And then what happened?
1: I heard shots happen and people were running all over the streets. I didn't know what happened. Like I, I, I mean, I know my people had a gun. But in my mind, like, they wouldn't shoot. Like, why would it, it happen? Like, in five seconds, like, they went and store, five seconds, late, shoot shots happened. I'm like, so anyway, I went home, I ended up taking the train home, and I uh, turned on the news, and it was like, a, you know, you have the special report, like, you know, coming up at five, or coming up at six o'clock, or whatever it was, or 11, however they did it, and they had the news about the crime, and my co-defendant was on TV, and they were arrested right there, the uh, two men that went in the store, and that's when I found out that all that had happened. Like, I Mm -hmm. I understood the details of what happened.
0: And obviously, they, they rolled over on you, made you out to be one of the main people.
1: Yeah, it was five of us all together who ended up getting arrested. But I was the last person out of the five, the youngest out of the five. Two of the people made long, you know. I mean, I try to stay away from, you know, the way in which we talk about snitching in a way because, like, they snitched on me, right? But it's also... They were young black boys in a precinct with police, and I know the police tried to do things to me to get me to do things, and they were and they were broken. The police broke them down. Like these were twenty old boys who, were, and you know, in in the street shit, like in the street realm, they snitched. There's no question about that. But I also just the way I was able to kind of like get heal past that, even while I knew it, like we were, they said things, they lied. Was that like we're all in the same thing together right now? And they almost broke me. The police broke me down. Because the, re- the reason why I was end up getting a- indicted, because I told them myself. I said, I was there. I said, I didn't do nothing. I was just there. And by stating I was at the place, that made me uh, part of the crime. So they
0: took you under the bridge by yourself. You had no lawyer. No parents were around. It's kind of mm-hmm. like that movie, When They See Us, by Ava DuVernay.
1: Which is why I like it so much. Yeah. They and they just the arrested with- me 5 in the morning. or six in the morning from my parents' house. And in brooklyn and crime happened in manhattan so they drove me to manhattan and it was you know they drove me under a bridge i find i realized later it was the manhattan bridge and it's like this area under the bridge that they have parked me under and they kept trying to come in the car and intimidate me like you know but finally they want me to confess and say something and, and the reason why they did that is because when they arrested me, they arrested me my parents, my family. And we had a friend of the family who was a lawyer, but, but apparently like a divorce, divorce lawyer or something. He wasn't a criminal lawyer, but it was like, we're going to call, call. And so the police knew that once an attorney got involved, they got, they can't question me. So at that time, cell phones weren't a thing like that. So their thing was, I learned this also obviously later, but like their thing was like, the longer we delay going to the precinct where the attorney would eventually call, we can try to get him before we go to the precinct. And they tried maybe like an hour or so, and they had different detectives coming in and this one, and you're gonna do this, and you know you're gonna get fucked inside, and or you know all these sort of things to you know scare me. And they all I remember saying, and this is why that movie when they see us it's so I I like I wrote about it like that, why that movie connected me so much because I remember saying in that car, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I just kept saying, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And I remember someone saying that, one of the kids in the movie saying, I just want to go home. And I was saying then go home. And I mean, you know, I didn't go home for a decade, but I didn't even know how they, why, how they, why they came to me, right? Like how they got connected to me by the time they arrested me is when I got into the precinct, I saw one of my co defendants one of the guys who was a part of it and in the precinct. I was like, oh, he's here. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know other people were arrested. You know, because there's five of us, two people were arrested at the scene of the crime. And in the days between, I was arrested three days after the crime happened. And in those two, in those three days, they arrested two other people. I didn't even know that. I didn't know two other people were arrested. I didn't know them. I only really knew one of the people, the other people in the crime. I just kind of met them like a day a day before, two days before. So the other guys, I didn't know. I had no idea to know they were arrested or anything like that. And, you know, I was 19. I was also just like, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Like, I always say, I didn't know what in the world was happening at that moment.
0: Did you have contact with your parents? Were they scrambling around trying to find resources to help you or were you kind of all on your own?
1: I was on my own. I mean I didn't connect with my parents until or any family, anybody until, I don't know, maybe a couple of days after I was arrested. Because I was in the precinct for a day. That was in Central Booking for me two days. And I didn't know how to use the phone. Like, I would say, I didn't know jail. Like I knew people went to jail, like, you know, between, but I didn't know about it, you know, in any sort of intimate way. So I didn't know about phone call like how you get a phone call or, you know, I didn't know there was a Manhattan house, right? I remember that's where they took me. In my mind, all we ever heard about was Rikers Island. Like, everybody heard of Rikers Island. So I thought I was on Rikers Island. I didn't know where I was. So when I finally got housed in Manhattan house, It might have been a couple of days, maybe two or three days before one, I understood that I could use a phone and probably had the courage to try to use it because I was scared. Like, I'm in jail. I don't know how this works. You hear all the stories, you know, you you know, so maybe a couple of days before I used the phone. And then I always remember my first phone call when I finally got to call my home, my sister, I was on the phone with my sister. And at that time, I still didn't know where Manhattan. Like I, it's weird being in like that. I didn't know where it was. Like I've been to Manhattan. I went to school in Manhattan, but I had never known there was a jail in Manhattan. And I didn't know where I was. So I remember asking my sister on the phone that day, like, "Where am I? <laughs> like, well, do you know where I'm at?" And she's like, "You're in Manhattan House." I was like, "Where is this? Like, I don't know where I'm where I am." And like, I had no sense of that like location. And you know, she described it to me. And I was still I was delusional for those first couple of days. And the first time I ever had a visit or saw anybody was maybe two weeks after, I think I was, I was arrested.
0: You were remanded for three years, Mm -hmm. no bail. You're in jail for three years before your trial comes up. What kind of time were you looking at? What was your mental state during that time? I mean, I know there's probably a whole roller coaster of emotions, but looking back now, you had to kind of Summarize it all. What would you say? Were you scared? Were you angry? Were you
1: lonely? All of the the above. All of the above. I was delusional in a real way. I didn't know. I, I would literally pinch myself. Like, am I really? Is this like? I just didn't conceive that it was what it was because initially we were all facing. At the time in New York, uh, there was still a death penalty on the books. So initially, I remember my attorney, the same person, call at arraignment said. You know, right now you're all facing the death penalty, but you know, you're in Manhattan, and a DA, Robert Morgenthau is anti death penalty. So, more than likely, you won't face that, but you are all are facing natural life in prison. And Which means what exactly? Natural life. Exactly. Like it means life. till you
0: die. You die. You die. I thought life was like 20 years or something, but it means till you die.
1: Yeah, natural. You know, he said natural life. And it could be 20 to life, it could be 50 to life, it could be all those things too. But natural life is like life with no parole. So that's what we were all initially facing. So that was also hard to conceive. I was like, I was in school yesterday, and now I'm facing life without parole. And I was like, I didn't shoot nobody, <laughs> right? That's without question the hardest thing to sort of hear. And that's another reason why I felt so delusional. I was like, how is, that ha- how is it possible that I could die here now?
0: Are they tempting you to snitch and say, if you just tell everything you know, then we'll, you can
1: do a plea for nope. two years? It was such a—the the crime was so high profile <clears> at the time— <throat> It made you know, it made a lot of news. So, you know, when you have these high profile crimes initially, you know, they're not trying to get you. They, they don't want to offer you a plea deal initially. Right. They want you to go through the ring ringer. So the first time I ever offered me a deal, though, was maybe I remember July of 2000. So I got arrested in October, 99, July 2000. I remember going to court and my, I had a different attorney now. And he said, uh, the D.A. wants to offer you something called being a queen for the day, it's, its apparently a legal term they use, queen for a day, where you go into the DA's office and you tell them everything you know, and there's no guarantee that they're going to offer you anything, but you got to tell them everything you know. But he said, they are offering you at minimum 40 years flat if you do that. And I was like, 40 years flat, meaning no life, just 40. So after 40 years, you come home. I remember saying that to me, it kind of went in my head and went out in the air, because it was like, I, I'm like, why would I do something like that? I, I just couldn't get it, right? And I was like, in my mind, I really didn't see the need for me to be telling on people. I was like, we're all here already. i like, we're all arrested. What do you need my help for? Like, we're here. Like, I just want to go home. I don't see how that's going to help me. So anyway, they offered me 40 years. I didn't take it. And I just kept going back and forth to court for the next almost three years. How did you adapt to jail life? I was somebody who learn quick that I was, so I was super quiet i was i didn't really interact with people at all and stuff. when i played basketball basketball became my place of refuge for me one of the places of refuge for me i would go just play and, and not even play with people because you know when i got arrested it was fall going into winter and then the basketball court was on the roof of the jail so it was like in a cage so it was outdoors so it'd be cold so most people in the one hour wreck that we would have wouldn't go so I would just go by myself and bounce the ball and shoot, Move, you know, because that was, that was for me. So that was one way and I observed a lot, like, like I just sat back and observed a lot of shit in jail. And it was like, this is things thing I'm not going to do. Okay. I'm not going to interact with people. I'm not engaged in these conversations. I'm not going to play cards. You know, I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to talk about the hip hop that I like. I'm not going to talk about what neighborhood I'm from. Like I just wanted people to just not know who the fuck I was. And that for me was like, that's, a, if you don't know who I am, there's no way to, for you to, there's no no way for you to engage with me, right? I didn't want anybody to become familiar with me. With the exception, there was two people: an older guy named Mister Ringer, and another v- friend of mine is G, who had a similar case to me. Similar case to me. Interesting enough, G ended up getting sentenced to the 50 years to life, but he was just exonerated a month ago after doing 24 years. But like, the exception of those folks, I didn't really interact with people. And I read a lot, I wrote with us when I started journaling to myself. I started getting back into the Bible. So I just spent a lot more time into myself. I didn't rock with anybody. And I remember somebody saying to me, Marlon, like, people here think you're crazy. Cause you don't you don't like you don't talk to nobody. And the only time you seem to really get talked to people is when you upstairs playing basketball. And when you up there, you're like a beast. Like I guess that's where my frustration came out. And I like that. For me, that was like this is exactly how I want people to see me in. I want people to not know how to get, I didn't want anybody to know how to connect with me. I had observed that when people connect with you in prison, this is just how I observed it at that time. When people connect with you in prison, that leads to games and jokes. And games and jokes can lead to other things, people coming out of their face and taking liberties with you. And I didn't want to be fighting in jail. In my eyes, like I wasn't afraid. By that time, I wasn't afraid of fighting. But I also was not in a place of like thinking that I'm gonna fight you today and think we're gonna be cool tomorrow. Like, I felt one thing I thought was zero sum. If we fight, that means one of us is gonna die. Like, either you are or I am. And I don't wanna be in that position. So I wanna avoid any situation that could lead to that type of physical confrontation.
0: Your dad also gave you some advice on one of his visits.
1: Yeah, he told me, Marley, I need you to learn to become a man in here. And that was. You know, some people might say, "Yeah, that's wonderful, right? That's great," and it is, but it was also scary as hell because the, his answer came in a context of like me asking him how, you, but like, how you, I need, like, how you gonna get me out of here? I need to get out of here, and he's like, I, "I'm trying to do all I can, but I, but I, nothing I can do. I just need you to learn how to be a man in here." And what I took from that was like, "Oh, you can't help me." <laughs> he's like, "You, you pretty much telling me I can't help you." And that was scary because even as a 19-year-old kid who thought he was a man, you know, hanging out in the streets, now I was faced with reality that, oh, shoot, I need somebody to save me. Nobody here going to help me now and nobody could. That was a hard pill to swallow because it was the first Mm -hmm. time in my life I think I realized that that in a very real way that I had nobody to support me in here. Like I had no help. There was no way out of this and it was just on me. And at 19, I had to grow up. So for me, it's like, oh, shoot, I got to grow up fast. Like I got to. And that's why I became super observant because I didn't know what, I didn't initially know what that meant. Like, how do I become a man here? Like, what does that, what what does that require? And I started figuring, that's why I said I sat back and and started really observing people.
0: What did you notice about people? And when I'm asking that question, I mean, as far as how they ended up in there with you, like. I have some relatives who, are in, who spent some time in prison and, and they talked about how most of these guys just had bad representation or didn't have a lawyer or like, that's really the reasons why they were in there with all those years. Yeah. Most of them were like really good people
1: just in a bad situation. All of them were people who sometimes who, were, who put themselves in bad situations, were, were put into bad situations. They were all people like me, just in variations. I would say I think everybody in prison is scared. Now you don't see that, like people don't say that. Obviously, that's not the that's not what they lead with. But everybody's looking over their shoulders, and when everybody's looking over your sh- when everyone around you's looking over their shoulders. That means nobody's trusting each other. And then people were frustrated, you know, not only because of the court case that they had and the time they were facing and all that, but you know, they you would see when I, when I would see people on the phone like crying and or arguing or yelling and like. I would see people crying, to, you know, with their kids on the phone. Like you know, they're talking to their kid or they're talking to their partner, and there'd be some deep pain coming out of them. And here's the thing about that: like, I would see that in them, and then like later the next that day or another day, you might see them being like like tough toned super tough, like you know, "curt and all that. But like, that's part of the trauma of incarceration, and you know, you have to create this. You create images, just persona that helps you get by. I created one too. As I said, I was just like super mute. I'm not mute, but I became super quiet and laid back. I had to create a different persona in me that like, I might be, it's just kid crazy, right? And we figure out ways to get by. And so a lot of times the ways to get by are not healthy. They're not productive. They're harmful. But it's also like what you expect in a place like that. Everybody is at, their, is at one of their low points at life. You put everybody at their low points in life, what do you expect? You can't expect people to be running around, walking around, smiling, and smelling flowers every day. We're all fucked up. And we have no control over our lives. So, I mean, I value so much, like when I said I sat back and observed people. I think because I didn't, I'm actually not saying, I was realizing this with you now in this conversation, is that I often talk about later in my business when I began to really see people. But I think it was actually then, early on, because I had all my biases about prison and prejudice about people in prison and gangs and all that. So I had my own stuff. I didn't go in there and feel like, oh, this is, my, this is all of us here, just like me. But I think I started seeing like people. You know, it's, it's, you know it may sound like hollowing what I'm saying, but I really started seeing like humans. And I saw parts of them in me. Like I didn't, I wasn't no big, I was no big jail, no gun runner. I didn't do all that, you know, all that stuff. But they grew up in the same neighborhood, just like me. Like they were just like, me it's just that they went that way you know what i mean so in some way i saw beauty in that i saw possibility in that and i think that's as time went on i think that's what led me to becoming much more willing to open myself up to people because i could see that oh wait there's a human part of you that most people don't see and that you don't want people to see but i know it's there and i'm a i am I know it's there and I, and i can connect with that part of the person Was it a release to finally get sentenced after three years? Yes. Yes. You know, oh, my God, yes. You know, because it was hard, obviously, to accept initially to be like, damn, like, it's over, like, you can't fight this case anymore. But it was like the hardest part of my time in prison of that decade were the first two and a half years. There was no certainty. I had no, I would wake up every day not knowing what would happen. I mean, there's, you know, a meaning in terms of like, will I ever come home or not? That was the options. Will I ever come home or not? Right? Um, and when I got sentenced, it was hard, you know, accepting it and all that sort of stuff. But it felt like, whew, well, I know what's next. I know I'm going upstate. Right. I know I'm going upstate. I know that's happening now. I have a date I could look I could circle on a calendar that says I'm a if I can make it to here, this is it. You know, I had an answer. It felt good.
0: So your co defendants got Fifty and forty years
1: you got twelve years the driver got acquitted. How did he get acquitted? Did he have a great lawyer? no I mean he had a state law i mean a court appointed attorney I don't know man so as you said one got fifty one got forty five another one got seventeen and a half and then so they the the the, the prosecutor tried us separately and the first guy who got fifty went to trial and lost the other two who got forty five and seventeen they pled to that term. And so after they pled, they came to me, and that's when they offered me the 12. And then my co defendant, I mean, the last person, the driver, the alleged, you know, the person who's, you know, the driver, he was the last person that they wanted to try, right? So by the time I was sentenced, I was already upstate New York in prison, and then they asked me to come down, you know, they asked me. (laughs) They made me come back down to New York City for court, and they wanted me to tell on him. Like they said, you know, if you come back down, you come back down. I remember they brought me back down to New York City. Into down here in Manhattan to the DA's office. It's like yo, we need you to you know testify against your co defendant. And I was like, for what? I'm already upstate. i like, I was like, what are you asking me to do this? For? I mean, it was like, why? Why am I doing this? I'm I'm already in prison. You asking me to do this anyways? I don't know how he got off. All I know that is one I didn't, and I'm not. I didn't testify. But uh, a couple of months after that, I was down here. They brought me back down here. I went back upstate, and maybe two three months later, my I called home and my sister told me that he got acquitted. He probably got found not guilty. To this day, I don't know. I don't know him. Mm. I don't know him. I don't know how he I, he got found not guilty. I don't know what happened in his trial.
0: Your trial, you made a vow before the court. What did you vow at that
1: point in time? Yeah, I vowed that I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a be a productive person. Yeah, I'm going to be a productive person to my, to my my to myself while I'm in prison and to my community. And of course, I didn't. At that time, I was 22. By that time, so I didn't know what I was going to do when I got upstate. I had definitely no idea what I was going to do when I when I was eventually released.
0: Was that something you were feeling in your heart, or you feel like that was just a good thing to say at your trial to no, try to I get took
1: time? No, I took time to write that. I remember writing that that talk, that speech, God kind of spoke at my sentencing. Mm-hmm. I took time. I, I thought that through, right? And I knew that here's the thing that even by the time I was sentenced, by the time I was sentenced, I had already become accustomed to prison, mm. right? I had figured out how I wanted to, I, I already started living the way I wanted to live in prison, meaning I'm going to learn as much as I can. I'm a to, if dudes need help with something, I can give them some sort of help, I'm going to help them out. And that felt good to me. Now I mean, remember, I started, I was doing that as a little kid too, as a little Jehovah's Witness kid. Like, I was doing that same thing as a kid as a Jehovah's Witness. So like, I gave it thought. And I knew that like, whatever it is, I'm going to survive this prison bid or if I don't survive the prison bid, I'm going to do it my way. And the way I want to do it is I'm gonna I'm going to be productive. I'm not going to turn to this, to that, you know, how people think about the stereotypical prison person. Right. I was like, I'm not going to become that person. Mm-hmm. If I die here, I'm going to die being like that. If I get out of here, I'm going to get out of here being like that, you know, cause that's the way that, that brought me at peace.
0: Yeah, And you said in an interview you said you don't want to give prison credit for your transformation and i when i saw that in the book that to me was the moment where you transformed like prison was just the place where you happened to be while you were going through your transformation mm-hmm. you know and you had these certain number of op- of options that you could you such as working in suicide prevention or you could write poetry or you could start a correspondence with people. But that decision came at that moment. And whether your prison was a year or 10 years or 50 years, you would have been on that new track, that pivoting to that new direction of, of transformation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can't know for sure, but I don't think prison was the intervention I needed. The life that I was, that I live now, even, I mean, I may not have been doing criminal justice work or anything like that necessarily, but uh, even in my days hanging out on the streets and all that sort of stuff, it was still in me to like do stuff that I worked, I had jobs. Not like I was just not doing anything with myself. It just, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And that's what happens when you're young. (laughs) You don't know what you want to do with yourself. That's like natural. when you, Particularly in your early 20s, you just naturally don't know what you want to do. It just so happened that, you know, I'm in a certain position and certain options are available to me and ended up in prison. But like when I got inside or as I evolved in prison, like prison, nothing about prison made me feel good. Nothing about prison encouraged me to like do the things I was doing myself. Like prison, there weren't like CO saying like, you need to do this. Or, you know, like, it wasn't that sort of thing. It was like me going into myself mm. and, I, and I realized like what I was capable of. You know, because even at being a, for the first couple for most of my bid, I was usually the youngest person, whatever, like housing unit I was in or whatever. And one, nobody would bother me. Like it was weird. Like in the streets, I had always people would always be trying to rock with me, you know, fuck with me and all that sort of stuff that we spoke about. In prison, that didn't happen. Like you would think of any place where people were gonna see you pray and talk, <laughs> it it would be jail and prison with grown ass men and you know what I mean? And it didn't happen. Like I was, except for one minor, minor incident, nobody ever tried to mess with me, ever. Why is that the case? I think I became, I said, like, I want to give President of Credit for, for, for my transformation. That commitment that I made, I said to you before that, like, I will always be a productive person, meaning, and a, and a part of what that means is that, like, my reading, my writing, my wanting to help people and all that sort of stuff, that's a core of who I like to be. And when I was hanging out after the trauma that happened to me as a young person, I felt like, no, I can't be that way because that's not going to get me through survival in these streets. And I realized like, nah, that's who I want to be. And, and that's who I am. And the consistency of who I was, that was my rep in prison. And people, mm-hmm. one thing I realized, and i realized just in terms of humans, humans respect consistency. Mm-hmm. Humans respect that no matter where you're at. And people will always knew who I was. I never... Because in prison, you can do this thing. You can go from one jail to the other jail. You'd be light walkings in jail number one. You go to another jail, you'd be killer light. Right? And people do that. I'm <laughs> telling you, people do it. Uh, people do it, right? Killer and I match. was always mauling. Like, so I was consistent about who I was. right? And I think people respected that. Like, this mm-hmm. kid is not involved in the shit. This guy is not involved in that stuff. And in some ways, he might be a lame. He ain't into the drugs. He ain't all that sort of stuff. And I was like, nah, Yeah, you're right. I'm not into that. <laughs> I'm I'm fine with that too and I think the people respected me for that. I think that's what I generally feel and because uh, even now I'm home I've been home for a while now I always say it is like there's nobody that can see me that through my entire 10, 11, 10 years inside and if they see me now they'll be like and I and they have said it oh I, I this is who you are. There's no there's no change in me. I think when I was growing up and trying to figure out who I was. I was trying to I was changing and trying to mm-hmm. be this weirdest this Wear that hat, wear this hat, wear that hat. And people probably saw that inconsistency. Mm. And that's why they saw, like, I could pick on this kid. You know what I mean? Uh, whereas in prison, I was who I was. And I was committed to being who I was, no matter what, whether it could get me killed or otherwise, I was committed to who I was. So you get this call from your cousin, Dev. Yeah, Devon, my guy. That's my guy. Maybe five years into the bid, I'm already upstate. we are on the phone. He says, like, you know, remember Nadia from the block? I'm like, yeah, I remember Nadia. He's like, yo, she said she want to reach out to you. She's a teacher now. He's like, you know. He's like, yo, she's a teacher now or something. And at this time, Devon is like in high school. And he's like, she, you know, she's a teacher. And she said she wanna reach out to you about something. He's like, is it okay if I give her your information? I'm like, yeah, whatever. In my mind, people always say they want to write you. And I'm like, yeah, give us her information. I need to think twice about it. You know, maybe like two weeks later, she writes me and she's like, yo, Marlon, how you doing? Pardon me for not being in touch and blah, blah, blah. I'm a teacher now. And, you know, i teach middle school kids. I know about your story, your situation. Because by that time, Nadia had become like part of our family. Like, I, you know, she's like family to us by that time. And uh, she's like, I want you to, you know, if you could write a letter to my kids, my students, about like the experiences, maybe some words of wisdom. And it blew me away because one... Like I said, Nadia and I were cool, but we weren't cool like that before I went to jail, right? So I was like, why me? Like, first of all, why me? You don't know other people. And the other part was like, like I'm here. I'm a I mean, I was in prison. Like, you know what I'm here for? Like, why would you want me to write your kids? Isn't that like a bad idea? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I became that conversation with Deb that turned into that letter from Nadia that turned into a correspondence program with her students completely changed my trajectory for life. Did she
0: ever say in hindsight why she reached out to you? Why did she think you would be good for this? You know you were writing? Did you share any of your poems or something with Dev? And he may have talked to her about the stuff that you were saying. Like, where wow. did that idea come from for her to reach out to you?
1: I mean, she's always been, I mean, she's educated now. If you know anything about Naya Lopez, she's like, just, she does things non-traditionally, but she's good at it as an educator. So I think that's in her DNA to do things non-traditionally, but also to really do whatever she needs to help young people. But in terms of why me, she didn't see me as this, like, what we think of a stereotypical kid who was just in the streets doing all the things, right? All the robbery. Like she, she knew, everyone knew that this wasn't, like, my course, like, like this was my... My mo, my 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 right. My she MO.
0: saw you. She knew you. She knew you, the valedictorian, and yeah. the kid, the sweet kid, and it's just kind of caught up
1: in a bad situation. And- yeah, exactly. And I guess that was it. You know, I don't know. That's a good question. Like, I don't know if I've asked her that. And we talk like every day. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever <laughs> asked her, like, why me particularly? Like, because she knew she's from the neighborhood. She knew other dudes that got locked up too. So, right. You know, and you've been in for years at this point. Yeah, I'm wondering if she, did
0: she saw a movie or read a book or. She saw Redemption,
1: know. Tukey Willing, the movie that Jamie Foxx played in. I remember that she had said that, like, her she had her students watch that movie and she had them do, like, write letters in support of Tukey Williams' clemency. Obviously it failed, but she wrote that. And I, so that's like I compel her to probably think about prison and reaching into prison, but I don't fully know why me. When i were really done with it, I'm a Marco Polo, because that's how we communicate. I'm a Marco Polo and ask her that particular question.
0: You get this package back from her class. And you said that you would have thought those were your release papers. You were so excited. <laughs> and you had a
1: roommate. Was your roommate's name Light? Is that what you were saying? Oh, wow. Yes, his name was Light. We called it. His name was Light. Yeah, he was Light. Yeah, Light. <laughs> he did some shit. Yeah, his name was Light. <laughs> <laughs> so you get this package. Light
0: thinks it's for him, but it turns out to be for you. And wh- what do those letters say?
1: <sighs> and. It was mailed from her school, right? So the return address was from the school. It wasn't from her house, right? So that was the first thing I'm like, I hadn't, you know, her first letter to me asking me to be a part of the project was from her home. This is from the school. So I'm like, hmm, that's the first thing I'm like perplexed by. And then I open it and there's a letter from her thanking me for it and all that sort of stuff and trying, and then introducing what comes behind her letter, which is 17 letters from students. And that wasn't a part of it. Like, I remember she said, Marlon, can you write me some words of wisdom to share with my kids? I didn't know they was going to write me back. Like, that that wasn't a part of the conversation. And I remember getting that letter. I mean, reading. First of all, just seeing that they wrote me. And I think I was just overwhelmed because I just didn't. At that time, I couldn't see why they would see. Like, why would I want to write me? Like I'm, I'm in prison. I'm here. Like, why would y'all care to write? I just couldn't. I understand it now, but like I couldn't get it then. So I was overwhelmed by it. And they were writing to me like, as a teacher, almost. It was. It, it just couldn't get. Kind of, at the time, I'm 24, or 25. You no, know, something like that.
0: Yeah, one 13 one year old girl called you her hero.
1: Yeah, and that stuff like that. As much as I was like beginning to grow and help other folks inside, I was in prison, and for the I still saw myself as a piece of trash right? I mean, I was there, right? And I knew, and I had guilt, right? I, I was a part of something that was horrible. And I just couldn't see, like, why would you see, why are people so valuing me? Kind of like I'm here, like, you don't see where I'm at. I was at the lowest rung of society. So, so when that little kid, when that young girl said, Mom, I see you as a hero, it was hard to understand, in this, you know, it was hard to understand, like, why at the time? This is why I'm so invested in young people. Because, like, they helped me and I'm there to help them. That's why I'm the adult. You know, I'm giving some words of wisdom. I had some life experiences, et cetera. And they were helping me because those because as the letters kept going back and forth, they started looking at me for advice about stuff that was going on in their neighborhoods, in their communities, in their homes. They were telling me things about their, like their about their trauma, this type of stuff that I would keep to myself. They were telling me and asking me for advice. And I was like, first of all, I wish I could say be so open about talking about things that's happening to me. And once again, why me? What are y'all seeing in me that y'all think I can offer you something? You know, and I think that's when I be, you know, I'm not gonna say it's genius talent, but you know, I watch this interview with like Jay, Jay-Z, He talks about genius talent, right? And I'm not saying like what I'm saying is like you is a point when you come in like where you understand. One of your your gifts, like you understand it, like you've been doing it for a while, but you kind of like, oh, this is a thing here. I, I can do this, and you have a name for it. You could title it, mm-hmm. and I think at that moment, like as I said, I was helping people inside and doing things what I can with individuals. But it was that I think in, in the process of the work with those young people, that I was like, oh wait, this is a thing here. Like I can communicate with people in a way that helps people, and was, and I understood it. And so, like after that program, or even even simultaneously with that program. I eventually get transferred to another prison because that's how prisons are. They transfer you. And I got opportunity to like be a part of this program where it was called Transitional Services, helping other men, preparing other men, and creating curriculum and facilitating classes and workshops and doing one-on-one counseling. And in so many ways, like an expansion of what I was doing with those young people. It was just in front of me. And I had never saw that for me. Mm. Never saw it for me. It's definitely not in jail. I mean, that's kind of like why I can say I got a book now, right? Like the thing that led me to the place where I have a book now or all the work I've been able to do is a direct result of those young people.
0: You also said you became a disruptor in prison.
1: So when I started running the, I eventually, the program, the transitional service program that I spoke about, the gentleman who ran, like it was all men inside who ran it. They were still like with the supervision of like, staff in the prison. But we ran the classes and all that sort of stuff. The man who ended up who was running it before me, the incarcerated man who'd run it before me, he had finally got released. He did twenty seven years, he was released. And the other men who worked in the program, older than me, was like, Yo, Marlon, you think you should be the person to run it. And I was like, What? <laughs> like, why me? Like I'm I'm younger than all of y'all. I got less time in than all of y'all. Anyways, so I eventually took it on and ran it. And the prison wanted us to like they had like their own curriculum. They wanted us to do things in a certain way. And it was arcane. It was out of date. It was not connecting. And so I would create my own shit and create my own curriculum and, you know, and do things that the prison didn't necessarily like in terms of how I would get information of people inside. And, you know, we eventually, you know, we had a partnership with a college, Vassar College, where students would come in and I would get the students to like bring in some information, like reentry information and resources that the prison, for whatever reason, didn't want us to get. And I would do it, but I would get in trouble for it a lot because they would know it was me. One example is that we had this thing with the students, the of college students who would come into the prison in the program and they would interact with the men inside. And we had this thing that we called Tech Friday. So Tech Friday would be like the kids, the students, would, uh, the vascular students would like create these poster boards of like technology, technology stuff, Like They would paste stuff or like cut papers out and cell phones and laptops and all that sort of stuff, you know, cause we were inside and we didn't have access to those things. I remember one day they came and they search, um, the CEOs came and they, the building where we, the school building is where we had these classes. They came and they locked the building down and they searched all our stuff and they targeted me and they came to my cell and took my stuff. And it was like, because I was, Somehow I was I was violating their rules by bringing that in. They thought somehow I was bringing in cell phones. I was like, they brought poster boards of a something. Like these are pictures. They're like it's a picture. I ain't, it ain't a cell phone. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, I was just one example of it. But I would go back and forth with administration a lot because I became a vocal against administration. And I knew I was doing it for other people. And once again, I had that date. I knew when I was coming home too. But like. Like, I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a position to disseminate information to people. That means I'm in a position of leadership here. If I'm in a position of leadership, then I have to stand up for our people, for my people. And if I gotta be the, if I gotta take the fall for it, I'm gonna take the fall for it. Because I can't, once again, remember I said before, like, I saw people, I saw the humanity in these men. You know, from I, I see this I can't deny that and I'm not going to be just like the administration I see this I need to get this stuff information to them because they need it they need to be able to be better themselves you know
0: yeah you there's so many gems from your Reports of being in the prison, we can't get into all of them, but you did end up spending three thousand seven hundred and twenty two days incarcerated, and then you started several programs once you got out you you implemented holler, which was your what is what's the acronym stand for oh HOLR. yeah, how our lives link all together yeah, you started that at two schools in Brooklyn and you started mentoring thousands of kids getting out of prison what was that like for you in terms of your purpose like did you see that as a relief or was it just an extension of what you'd already been doing and now you could just do more of it oh it's
1: definitely an extension it was definitely an extension because even with the ho- the hollow program that me and a couple of guys started from inside like we came home when i came home when I implemented it in the schools the basis of the curriculum was created in prison.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just that now I get to I get to implement it, and a lot of the skills that I developed in terms of curriculum development, public speaking, and like I had started doing those things inside, right? And and here's the thing: when I came home, I didn't know that I was going to be doing the work that I was doing necessarily. I knew I wanted to go to school. I was like, when I come home, I want to get a, another degree. That's the only thing I was really certain of. And, and I was like, maybe I want to write too, but I didn't know how. Or what, you know, how that would work out or what to do, right? I didn't know how to begin getting things published outside at least. But it was definitely an extension. Like I I, I go back to those young people and Dr. Lopez, Nadia Lopez, that they helped me realize I got this sort of ability, talent, gift, desire, whatever it is, to help folks and get information to people and to empower people. So when I came home, like it's weird. You I always I had this thing where I say you attract what you attract. So the opportunities that I had in terms of like, in some way they would come to me. I don't mean I think sort of like metaphysical way, maybe I do, but but these things would come to me because this is what I I was sort of like involved with myself in working with as a, uh When I came, home, I was a volunteer and I ain't had no money, <laughs> I, but I would run this program with these kids because I cared. <laughs> these kids were my age when I was going through the trauma, so I care about these kids, right? And then I have opportunity to take kids to go to create college trips. I had never done that shit before. I didn't know what that did, but like the opportunity came to me. I was like, oh, let's organize college trips for these kids, right? And it would go on and on and on and on. Or I would bring people who I knew from my neighbor, from my community into these opportunities and these programs. So it was definitely an extension of what it is that I was sort of training myself to be. You've gone on to become an
0: author. You're a TED Talk speaker, you got your degree from NYU. You traveled all over the world. When you come home at the end of the day after doing all these wonderful things, how do you, how do you feel? I know you mentioned in, in an interview that you're still grappling with your deserving of the happiness. So that's where this
1: question is coming from. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: prison and prisons plural. I'm speaking somewhat metaphorically, also it does this thing where like, even if you're out of the cage, it still struggles to maintain a grip on you. Hmm. And so the feelings of unworthiness, guilt, like there's a struggle. It, it still tries to like to encircle me. And so I accept, I realize I'm happy for the work I'm able to do. And I know that people, I'm impacting people. Like that matters to me. I, I So at the end of the day, as you had asked, I feel like, oh, wow, man, like it, like somebody sent me this email or they DM me or whatever it was, how much it's impacted and whether it be some work I did, a program former my students, former mentees, like I helped them, you know what I mean? And that feels good. Mm. And then the other part of it, I think when I talk about the part about, you know, these prisons, plural and metaphorically, whenever I do something wrong, whenever I make an error in life and a decision, Sometimes what happens still is that, like, see, Marlon, fucking up again, and then sometimes all the the things from the past can sometimes come in and conflate, right? And and I'm much more aware of it than I was. Like, you know, I've gone through bouts of depression in the in, in recent years because of those things. But the other part of it is this: is that like, just like those kids again, when people pour into me when they say thank you or they're like, wow, just help me out, or you know, whatever it is. How about someone impacting them? That reinforces the goodness and Like, no, Molly, you're more good than not, Molly. Like, yeah, yeah, you're creating opportunities and empowerment for other folks. So that helps dwarf the stinking thinking, <laughs> you know, I've heard people say.
0: It's almost like your brokenness that you accumulated along the way from the rape experience and, you know, just all getting beat up and robbed and having to go to prison. It makes you more relatable to the kids. And you can relate to them, and they can relate to you, and and it gives your words and your expressions more power. You've also said that prison doesn't rehabilitate people. Getting older and more mature is what actually rehabilitates people and going through all of these experiences.
1: Yeah, look at Malcolm X. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, look at the brother. He just got older. Brother just got older. You know, I think, just thinking like almost in a very – in a data way, just think about like people go to prison. The peak age for people for incarceration are between their late teen years to their early thirties, late twenties. Right? That that is the peak years for incarceration, and people are still evolving at that time. You're all evolving. It's just that particular black and brown people in certain communities with police more there's different options available, all those sort of things. And I grew up. I just grew up. You know what I mean? I mean, it's. I don't want to make it sound crass or insensitive to what what it required for me to grow up in terms of the the crime I was a part of. But I'm just saying, ultimately, I grew up. Like, Mm. I grew up and I evolved and I matured, you know, And, and prison, like, you don't need prison to mature, grow, evolve. You don't need that. I'm just saying, like, we don't need that. Like, people they are people who do a lot of things, and they just grew up in a mature. Most drug always like the kid I remember growing up as being drug dealing kids and all that, they all around in the late 20s, mid 20s, got city jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just stopped doing drugs. They, they got city jobs, they got, they, they had a kid, they got a family, you know, like they grew up. I don't think we factored that in enough, that like rehabilitation is just also evolution. Final question. How do you f- define success for yourself
0: these days?
1: Uh, I hate when people are like, I ask people these questions. <laughs> people ask me these questions. I'm like, damn. I want my book to do well. I want people to read it. I want a lot of people to read the book. I think it help a lot of folks. That'd be success for me if a lot of people get to read it. And it could you know, support people in their growth and evolution and prevent. And that's not quantifiable. But like for me, that's success. I think success for me also on a much more personal note, is being able to triumph over challenges of intimacy. I think that's on a more personal note. I think that is the one, like you know, I, the last chapter, of my the last sentence in my book is happiness is next, and that's many things. Success in the book, success the profession. I still want those sort of things. I do know that one of the cages. I speak about cages in a bird's called books called bird on cage. I think one of the cages I still need to find freedom from is the cage of not being open to levels relational intimacy like romantic intimacy right i think that that's a struggle for me Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of reasons you know my past plays a huge role in that and that for me that's that's another role of success because i think that's i mean that's the highest vibration of humanity i think is being able to accept love like i think i've always struggled with accepting relevance and worthiness but i think the other part that i still struggle with is like love.
0: As a disruptor and change maker, what do you what do you need help with? Like if someone's listening to this conversation and they have resources or connections, like what's something that you, to make your mission bigger with the kids and the programs, is there anything you could use that someone could help you with?
1: Yeah, I want to get this book or variations of this book or my story on the screen. <laughs> you know, I people okay. listening, I think, you know, once again, theres sort of thing about I accept that people look up to me, and I don't only talk about young people. I'm thinking about adults as well. I, I accept that, and I and I honor that. And mm-hmm. as I progress, I know people feel a part of, like they're progressing too, and triumphing over challenges as well. And I think, like, being able to speak about not only my life but the experiences I've seen, Brooklyn in the way I saw it, Trinidad in the way I've seen it, I think it, it could help a lot of folks. Right? I just really feel like you know I've been through some extraordinary shit, bro. <laughs> and, and the only way I sometimes make sense of it is that it's also my, because I went through these extraordinary things. It's my job to sort of share, ex- to share, the, to share it with people in an extraordinary way. Mm. Cause that's the way I make sense of a lot of things I've sort of experienced and seen and people who have said things to me and have poured love into me. So yeah, some people want to help out like that. I mean, you know, I think about that. I mean, I don't, I'm not good about asking for money and all that sort of stuff or things like that. And that's not really, those things come. But yes, yeah, support that. I really want to get this to on that on a larger level. Because the other thing, I've traveled the world too. I know one thing, I've traveled the world and I've been in prisons in other parts of the world. I've been in hoods and ghettos and you know, we're in all the parts of the world. And I want to be able to share the brilliance and the resilience of all those places too, just like my ghetto here in Crown Heights, you know?
0: Well, the book is called Bird Uncaged, and reading it is indeed a transformational experience. For anyone really, just because it gives you a glimpse inside of a world that I think a lot of people who don't live in Crown Heights will be able to blow their minds, just all the things that you've gone through. But also just kind of looping it back around to where we started, it's kind of like its own little optimus prime in the sense that (laughs) that experiencing this story is wow. transformative not just for the reader but you see how much of an impact you've had on the people in prison and on these these kids and taking that trauma and that brokenness and transforming it into something that is enlightening and productive and inspiring to other people so yeah, I just want to acknowledge you man for uh for writing the book because that, that's that's a that we could do a whole podcast just on the process of writing the book. And you like we talked about before the interview, you put every it seems to me like you put you had no filters. You put everything in here. And and I think that's really a beautiful and important just to allow people to understand that even our heroes have flaws. And that's, you know, that's, that's, again, the, any superhero movie, the Transformers, any of it, they all have weak spots, they all have blind Mm -hmm. spots, they all put themselves in positions where they get exposed and exploited. And yet, at some point, they have to have that moment of truth where they say, look, I'm not going to play the victim anymore. I'm going to become the hero of my story. And I'm going to become the best, best version of me. That was a part of your hero's journey. So I just want to acknowledge you for showing up in that way and for being an example for anyone else who's going through those kinds of challenges in life to also see that, look, this there are options, even in the worst situation at the mm-hmm. depths of hell, mm-hmm. there are things that you can do mm-hmm. to make the world a better place. So thank you that. thank you for that. Thank you for showing up that way
1: and for sharing your story, and uh, so openly and honestly. Thank you. Thank you, Light. Uh, 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 the sign of a great conversational interviewer, I mean, I had never been asked about a toy as a kid, and, and I had never even thought about Optimus Prime in that way since I don't know when, and I mean, give me think about that, but also how you kind of just ran, you know, full circle at the end, and thank you. Thank you, bro.
0: No doubt, man. Thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. And I hope to cross paths with you at some point soon. We will. Thank you for listening to my interview with Marlon Peterson. Marlon's new book is now available everywhere books are sold. It's called Bird Uncaged. It is an excellent read. Marlon also has an incredible TED Talk, and he's got a podcast called Decarcerated. And to get the show notes and a full transcript of our conversation, you can always go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, make sure you sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, and you can pre-order my upcoming book of inspiration, which is called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which comes out on May 25th, but please pre-order it as soon as you can. And also don't forget to leave your rating or review for this podcast so we can help other people find these inspirational stories. And like I've said before, your review could be the one that inspires someone to give this episode a listen and that could end up changing their life for the better. So I just want to thank you in advance for taking the 10 seconds that it takes to click on the Apple podcast app and the name of the episode and to scroll down where you see ratings and reviews and just leave a five-star rating and or a couple of sentences about what you enjoy in this podcast. In the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one has told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote That's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.